Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're going on a quest to Middle Earth. I'm joined by John Garth, the author of The Worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien, The Places That Inspired Middle Earth. The Worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien takes readers on a tour of the real places that inspired Tolkien to create his fictional locations in the Lords of the Rings trilogy, The Hobbit and other works. John's book contains many illustrations, ranging from Tolkien's own drawings to photographs of contemporary Britain and various illustrations for Tolkien's books. John identifies the places that inspired the Shire, the Valley of Rivendell, the mountains, the caves, the forests, and many other settings from Middle-earth. He considers the places where Tolkien lived, his travels, the books that influenced him, and his work at Oxford University. Welcome, John. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. It's, uh, it's lovely to have you with us. Uh, okay, my first question is about how you describe yourself. When you turn up at a party, uh, do you say that you're a Tolkien scholar? Well, the, the sad fact is that as a lifelong nerd, I've always been very bad at introducing myself at parties. Um, so I, I would hang back, to be honest, um, and await my turn um, to say, well, I've written a book and then explain what it's about. Uh, a couple of books now, in fact. Um, most of the parties I ever, I ever go to these days are, in fact, organised by Tolkien societies who are kind enough to invite me to speak, so I don't have any problem uh, introducing myself there. So that's, that, that's home for you then, if you're, you're completely surrounded by fellow nerds, I guess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's rather, rather lovely. All right, okay. On to the book. Uh, it's a lovely book. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's very in-depth. What does it take to write a book of this nature? Um, I'm thinking, di- did you need to access Tolkien's archives in any way or something like that? For this book, only a little. So for my first book, Tolkien and the Great War, yes, I looked at um, a, a lot of what he preserved from the First World War, letters from friends and, and uh, military records and so on. For this book, there was only a, a small amount that I needed to find out from his papers, um, primarily his academic papers, which I which I mind a little. Um, a great deal of his work has been uh published posthumously so there's a huge mine of information that uh you can you can do research in um what does it take to write a book it takes um a book like this it takes tenacity curiosity um a desire to nail down the facts and tie down your your interpretation so that it it seems reasonable to yourself and will sound reasonable to other people, or to or to calibrate it so that you don't overstate the case sometimes. So I can understand where you make a link between, say, where, where Tolkien has lived or travelled to, and then linking it to something in, in the book. But sometimes you make a, what looks like an educated guess. Um, would that be right? In, would that be right? Um, I do, or, or I, I, I cite other people's educated guesses, um, as long as they're educated, that's that's really what right. counts. So there are there, there's quite a lot of um, uh, claims circulating, especially online, 
about Tolkien's influence from places like the Ribble, the, the Ribble Valley in Lancashire or the Forest of Dean um, or the Burren in Ireland, which unfortunately fall flat because he wasn't in those places at the right time for it to have influenced the books that they claim it influenced. And yet, and yet, um, because these claims have been circulated and swapped, uh, you know, they, they've acquired the air of truth. Um, and I, I'm trying to chip away a little bit of that. Um, although I have to say, my aim in the book has been to be positive um, and to advance claims that I think are interesting instead of uh, spend time attacking claims that I doubt. Isn't the suburbs of Birmingham a rather unlikely source of inspiration for the Shire? Well, the point to observe is that when he was there um, in, in an area called Hall Green, uh, which, which in his days, uh, it was the village of Fairhall, um, it was outside the city limits. It was right in the countryside. There were no motor cars, there were no streetlights. It was very Shire-like. Um, in many respects, but certainly to a, a, a child of his age, um, he was he was I think between seven and eleven, that, that kind of age. Um, the other thing that makes it shy-like, however, is that it was overwhelmed by uh, suburbia. Um, and at the end of the Lord of the Rings, of course, when the hobbits return to the Shire, they find that it has been taken over. Uh, by an industrialist and uh, hobbit holes, cosy hobbit holes have been replaced by shabby uh, prefab huts and so forth um, and, and this is a quite clear reaction to some of the things that Tolkien saw going on in Britain in his, in his day but also to specifically to a visit he made back to his old stomping ground in the 1930s which upset him terribly and hobbit holes you wrote about Tolkien's World War I experiences of living underground in the trenches as being part of the inspiration. Yeah, now that sounds obviously uh, really unlikely, doesn't it, on the face of it? Um, because you think of trenches as being disgusting places and, and he goes out, bends over backwards right at the start of The Hobbit to explain that this Hobbit hole of Bilbo Baggins is, is not a nasty wet hole full of the ends of worms and so on. Right. However... If you were an officer, as he was in the British Army, and you had the benefit of being in a dugout as opposed to being uh, sitting in the, uh, a hole carved in the wall of a trench, um, mostly open to the air, uh, you were in an enviable position. Um, he lived in a generation where, where uh, uniquely uh, for the first time in, in, in thousands of years, uh, people lived in holes because of because they were fighting in that war. Um, I, I don't think you can overlook uh, that and 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 uh, dismiss it as definitely a coincidence that he writes about hobbits living in holes. Um, officers' dugouts could be incredibly comfortable. They 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 brought down their luxuries. They they had record players down there um, and, and and so on. So there's there there is that element there. On top of which, Tolkien did say when he was asked. Uh, about his inspiration for Hobbit Holes. He was very dismissive of the idea that he got it from rabbit holes, despite the sound-alike qualities of the word Hobbit and rabbit. Um, he mentioned thatched cottages, 
um, as, I suppose because sometimes they, they look rather like a natural excrescence from the ground because of the, the un, unkempt thatch on top of the cottage. And he mentioned uh, German trenches. We found German trenches which were often very habitable indeed. Uh, German trenches were a, a sight for sore eyes. If you'd been um, in the British trenches, they were, they were much deeper and much more uh, safe, secure and comfortable. Now, one, one thing that I, I learned from the book was uh, you, you talked about Tolkien not being inspired by Arthurian legend or Arthurian literature or even some of the places uh, that are associated with Arthur. Um, why was that the case? What, why did he go to, towards other mythologies? Well, actually, he, he claimed he wasn't influenced by Arthurian legend, but he did write um, a, a long poem, unfortunately unfinished, called The Fall of Arthur. Um, and you can see that there were influences. Um, for example, he, uh, he he tried to tie this Arthurian poem to his mythology. Um, he gave the name Avalon, um, which anyone who knows about Arthurian legend knows that Avalon is where King Arthur is taken um, when he uh, when he's dying of wounds. Um, he gave that name to. Uh, the Lonely Isle of the Elves, or to a harbour there, uh, which happens to be where Frodo is taken at the end of The Lord of the Rings uh, to heal him from his wounds. And so there are definitely parallels, uh, influences. But Tolkien said that the uh, Arthurian body of legend was too explicitly Christian uh, for his purposes. So he wanted to write a mythology that uh, wasn't transparently... Um, uh, a reshaping of Christian religion. So he wasn't—he wasn't setting out to do uh, what what C.S. Lewis does in um, his Narnia stories, when you know, to provide a story about what uh, a Christ-like figure would be like in a world with with talking animals. Tolkien wanted to write a mythology like the mythologies he loved, in which he saw poignant hints at uh, the truth. And, and he, when he said the truth, he meant the Christian truth because he was a devout Christian. It was the, it was the fact they were hints that gave, him, gave it the poignancy that he loved. Uh, uh, and the Arthurian uh, collection of legends was just too explicit about, about all that with the, uh, the quest for the Holy Grail and so on. I suppose that Arthurian legend rarely deals with humble people it's knights, noblemen, ladies, uh, witches and wizards, things like that. But well, that's, 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 that's very true. And, of course, with The Hobbits, Tolkien uh, does deal uh, wonderfully with, with humble people. Uh, however, it has to be remembered that Tolkien didn't get round to inventing Hobbits until he'd been working on his mythology for about a decade and a half. Um, uh, prior to that point, um, there are very few humble people in there. It is much more in that uh, Arthurian vein. Right, okay. Um, it seems Tolkien could be inspired by humble places like Oxford's River Chowell and awe inspiring places like, like the Alps. Um, would that be correct? Absolutely. I think he was very attuned to nature um, and he was very. 
he, he could sense the resonances between his feelings and the world around him. I mean, that's a, a very highfalutin way of saying a simple thing, you know, that, that his, his moods were affected by, by the world around him and he saw his moods, moods um, reflected in it. So he introduces um, a veil of willows in one of his early uh, mythological stories, The Fall of Gondolin, uh, where the hero um, uh, loses track of his quest and becomes distracted from it. Um, and it, it, it's a place of sleepiness. Now, Tolkien complained about what he called the Oxford Sleepies. Um, they made it very difficult for him to be productive in his work when he was an undergraduate there. Um, and Oxford is full of willow trees and the River Charwell in particular. Uh, so, so I think there's a fairly clear connection there between this early story and, and the River Charwell. And then in The Lord of the Rings, you get the same scenario again, where the hobbits are distracted almost fatally from their quest. They travel through the old forest, which is right next to the Shire, but it's uh, under the control of this malignant uh, tree spirit called Old Man Willow, who sings a song of sleep to them. Uh, so it's, it, there's resonances there going all the way back to Oxford and the River Charwell. The, you mentioned the Alps, yes. So in 1911, Tolkien undertook um, with a, a group of about 12, um, a few weeks hiking, uh, very rough, um, around Switzerland. And that really left, his mark, left its mark on his imagination. So pretty much every time he writes about mountains, um, you can sense that, you know, there's a thrill there, um, there's a memory there. Um, and some of his descriptions and his drawings are very, very, um, very clearly linked with, uh, with particular places, especially the Valley of Lauterbrunnen, which um, you can see from his drawings uh, closely inspired the Elven Valley of Rivendell. Makes sense. There's not a great deal of mountains around uh, Birmingham. No. Um, forests. You just mentioned forests. Now, any any author worth their salt has referenced the dark forests, the things lurking in the forests, and Tolkien has Mirkwood. Um, now, that was inspired by a, a northern European forest. Perhaps you could tell us about that. So he took the name Mirkwood from um, northern Scandinavian literature. It was the name among Germanic peoples, uh, such as the, the Scandinavians and the Goths, for the vast forests that at that time um, ran from um, what, what's now Germany uh, eastwards. Um, and Tolkien was very interested in the name Mirkwood, very interested in the other name for it, which was a, 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 a Latin name that appears in um, Caesar's, Julius Caesar's book, uh, The History of the Gallic Wars. Uh, the Hercynian forest, he was interested in the origins of that name. He connected it with words for oak tree and the thunder. Um, and he, he creates a vast forest uh, for the hobbit uh, for which he borrows this, this name. And he, he uses it in all kinds of ways, which I try to explore. Um, he does use it like one of those fairy tale forests in the, in the tales of the Brothers Grimm. Um, uh, like a like a forest of elves in uh, medieval poems, like Sir Orfeo, um, and and he even plants uh, human populations in there who are very much like 
the German tribes, the Gothic tribes that fascinated him so much. Um, I have to ask about Mordor. A, a number of places, events and like social changes served as the inspiration for that evil place. Um, can you talk a little about that? Yeah, so one thing that's very striking about Tolkien's Mordor, uh, bearing in mind that this is in a this is in a long fantasy epic where there have been encounters with, um, you know, demons, uh, giant spiders. Um, uh, there, there, there was every opportunity for Tolkien to create a hell on earth that was Miltonic, uh, that was Dantean, um, where there were more demons, where there were all kinds of fantastical things. Um, he did not go down that route. He created uh, Mordor in the vein of it's a, it's a it's a land that's been blasted by volcanoes, but also by sorry by a volcano, uh, Mount Doom, but also by um, industry um, and slavery um, and militarism. So there are various influences here. One of them, I think, is the kinds of military. Uh, accommodation that Tolkien was thrown into as a soldier in the First World War, uh, which, which were planted in quite beautiful places, but very, very grim and utilitarian, nasty places to be um, stuck, um, especially in time of danger when you're far from your family. Um, then there's, of course, the battlefields and trenches themselves. Um, and Tolkien said he told uh, j journalists that these areas... Um, were inspired by the ruined landscape uh, of the Somme, the Battle of the Somme in 1916, where he spent his um, active military service. Um, and then the, the there is there is one of these things that that gets traded around uh, in Birmingham newspapers, in newspapers in the West Midlands and online as well. Um, that the that Mordor was inspired by Birmingham or by the black country now I don't believe at all that it was inspired by Birmingham because although Birmingham had industry uh, it was also very beautiful in places uh, especially places where Tolkien lived um, even when he was in the city uh, and had had moved away from that village of Serhole that I mentioned earlier it was a very arts and crafts kind of place um, of canals and uh, he, he, he liked it he, he called it giddy old Brum uh, Brum being a word for Birmingham uh, but the black country which was right next door had been severely blighted by industry um, the atmosphere was poisonous uh, the air was, was thick with uh, fumes um, the rivers were poisoned um, and I don't think it's coincidence that Tolkien um, called Mordor what he called it because it's elvish for black country now uh, I don't think that means that Tolkien wanted us the readers to understand Mordor as a kind of code for the black country near Birmingham I think he would have felt that was very reductive um, and I can't really put this better than I put it in the book so I'm going to just read a quote he gives uh, in a, a wonderful essay called On Fairy Stories where he's talking about um, 
how how fairy stories describe places in a in a in a minimal way. They allow the listener or the reader to bring their own imaginations to bear upon the places that are described. If a story says he climbed a hill and saw a river in the valley below, Tolkien writes, every hearer of the words will have his own picture, and it will be made out of all the hills and rivers and dales he has ever seen, but especially out of the hill, the river, the valley, which were for him the first embodiment of the word. Now, with the black country near Birmingham, I think for Tolkien, that was the first embodiment of that kind of blasted and poisoned landscape and hence uh, it feeds into but does not fully contain Mordor. Yes. We should perhaps describe a little bit more about the black country. So that's uh, a part, um, part of the Midlands just north of Birmingham but it's like Wolverhampton, Walsall and it really was the heart of the Industrial Revolution and it was called black because there was so much dust and dirt, correct? That's absolutely right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so was Tolkien a fan of things like, I don't know, motor cars, both of which were like important industrial parts of Oxford and, and Birmingham? I was getting the feeling he wasn't too keen on traffic. He had, he had very mixed feelings um, uh, about motor cars. Uh, he, he owned two, uh, serially, um, in the 1930s um, and, and stopped driving when uh, petrol rationing began during the Second World War. Uh, he used his car to get about and see the countryside, which he loved so much. So in that sense, it opened up uh, a great deal of pleasure for him and his family um, and brought him in touch with some of his, his inspirations. Um, and one of the threads in my book is how in that era the car was uh, a, a wonderful portal to nature um, but as time went by and, and when pet petrol rationing eased uh, after the second world war oxford became severely blighted by traffic um, tolkien wrote an un so far still unpublished uh, satire uh, about that called the bovidium fragments um, and uh, I'd, l I'd love to read that, but he, his letters show that he was infuriated, frustrated, upset uh, by all of this uh, and felt that the car was a terrible um, uh, blight. So have you uh, visited some of these places that have inspired Tolkien? I visited uh, the, the Somme area and looked at everywhere Tolkien uh, fought uh, when researching my first book. I know Oxford very well um, and, and the area. I studied there and lived there for some years. Um, I haven't visited all the places um, and I think actually that that's... I wouldn't like to see people to think that this is a travelogue. Um, yeah. that's, that's not the point of it and I, I think it can be misleading. If you go to see a place or if you already know a place uh, you find it very beautiful, very striking and you're aware that, you know, maybe Tolkien visited it, or possibly visited it, you might very easily jump to a, a, an emotionally um, charged uh, conclusion that he must have been influenced by this. Um, I, I, I find it much more helpful to try to be a bit more forensic about it and find out, well, either did he say anything about that, um, or, uh, you know, 
is there is there other reason uh, for him to be influenced? Does it make sense uh, in terms of his creative methods, his general personality, his his general thinking? Yeah, I feel a little bit um, akin to Tolkien because um, I was actually born in Staffordshire, so I know Cannock Chase. And in my first year of working, I lived in Birmingham for a year. So again, I lived actually lived in South Birmingham for a little while. And then I lived in Oxford for a long while. And of course, you can just wander up the road and see his house. And you can also see his gravestone. Um, so he's sort of always been there in the background for me. Yes, and me, me, me too, really, yeah. And then there's places like... Uh, the Veil of the White Horse, which you, you mention in the book, which uh, and you talk about the, the riders of Rohan and horse, horse riding and things like that, um, that's obviously going to inspire anyone just going to a place like that. Yes, but there, there's another dimension with Tolkien. So Tolkien was immersed in uh, history, in prehistory, in place names, um, and he, he could read the history of an area through its place names. For example, uh, he was very well aware of, um, you know, what the Anglo-Saxons were doing as it was understood at the time um, in, in the areas in which he lived. Um, he loved uh, the history of the kingdom of Mercia, um, which stretched from Oxford all the way through the West Midlands, uh, covered all the area which he loved. Um, and you can see that he is borrowing its name in uh, because it meant it meant it, if, if it's modernised, it, it comes out as the mark or the march, um, meaning the borderland. And in the Lord of the Rings, we have the West March of the Shire, so that borrows a bit from Mercia, um, and even more so, we have Rohan, uh, the the land of the horse lords, who call their own country the Mark, which is just an updating of the name Mercia, um, and many of their traditions are absolutely Anglo-Saxon. So the borderlands for Mercia would be Wales? Mercia was called Mercia because from an Anglo-Saxon point of view, it was the borderland with Wales, with the Celtic lands. Right. Uh, one final question, which we ask all our guests. Um, what book or books are you currently reading? Well, I'm reading uh, a few, actually. Uh, I've just finished uh, uh, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow by Juno Diaz, which is about a Tolkien-obsessed nerd, <laughs> but slightly differently, uh, a different one from, from me. Uh, he lives in New Jersey, um, and it's, it's, it's very much about also his family background, which is uh, uh, from the Dominican Republic under the dictator Rafael Trujillo. Um, so that was very interesting. Um, and I've just started uh, N.K. Jemison's The Fifth Season, uh, published in 2015, winner of the Hugo uh, Award, Science Fiction Award, major Science Fiction Award. Um, and that's uh, uh, very much to do with geology, which uh, fascinates me. And I'm also simultaneously reading a huge and lovely book published in 2000, uh, it's called Origins, the Evolution of Continents, Oceans and Life, and it's by Ron Redfern. Those first two are uh, legitimate bestsellers, but not really the typical reading for a self-confessed nerd. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, my 
I, have, I, I feel somewhat guilty that I don't read more science fiction and fantasy because um, obviously, you know, if I, if I claim to be an expert on Tolkien, I really ought to know um, more about what he has influenced. So that's all we have time for this week. Um, many thanks to John Garth, author of The Worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien, The Places That Inspired Middle-Earth. Uh, thank, thank you. Um, it's been wonderful of you to have me. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again soon.